Good morning. It's good to see you today. We are in part two of what I called last Sunday the greatest change in the history of the Christian church, which is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And Terry and I have talked about this quite a few times. There's a challenge with this account or this story, and that is, uh, no matter how many bright lights are, it's placed in, it's difficult, I think, to make the inclusion of the Gentiles seem intimately relevant to anybody here. Because it happened so long ago, and because we're all Gentiles. I mean, it's a room full of Gentiles. So there's no possible way that it's revelatory that you're allowed to be here. Um, because you're here. But it is still relevant, and, and I've really wrestled with how do I remain faithful to the Scriptures in recounting the teaching and the significance of the fact that the Gentiles are being, have, have been, the gospel has been released to the Gentiles, and how significant that really is with the mindset of it. I don't know if it feels closely relevant to the people who will hear it. And, and so I'm going to do two things today. For one, I'm going to tell you it really is important. Uh, so when it doesn't feel relevant, it still really is. The fact that you and I have, by God's grace, the opportunity to know Jesus Christ is because of this story and, and the nature of God that's reflected through it. And that really matters. Sometimes I think, no matter how big something is, if it's off in a distance, it looks small. You know, ah, the printing press. The printing press was a big deal. You know, ah, computers. The farther away, and so what we have is we have what's really a really big idea, but it's so far away from us it looks like a small deal. But it isn't. It's a big idea. So today we're going we're to go through the story, and we're going we're gonna to speak about the scriptures here as they relate to the story, but I am going to do something else. I am going to take a pause in the middle and kind of reflect on what is a parallel, what do I think are some parallel examples in our modern day, but I don't want it to be a concession to the truth, which is the truth is, is that it is significant that we can worship Jesus Christ. And that really is a big deal. So with that said, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we will begin there this morning. And like I said, this is part two, so we're picking up in the middle of the story. Last Sunday, we started the story, and it started roughly this way. There is a a God-fearing Gentile. Now, Gentile is another word for non-Jew. It's not like an evil word. It's just he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. Just like later today, I'm going to say the word pagan. Pagan is a... I'm using it as another word for non-Christian. It's not like evil pagan. It's just pagan. It's just a word. Well, there's a Gentile, and he's a God-fearing Gentile, which means he's attracted to the, to the Jewish faith in some way, shape, or form. He prays, he gives to the poor. Well, he's praying one day, an angel appears to him and says, because of your faith, God is going to bring you a messenger who's going to give you words of life. At the very same time, or roughly the same time, um, some ways away, Peter the Apostle is receiving, in a vision, a similar message on his own side. So the Lord is preparing Cornelius to hear words, and the Lord is preparing Peter for the massive change that's going to happen in the church. Because Peter has to deal with a lot. Now, last Sunday we dealt with Peter. This Sunday we're dealing with Cornelius. 
And where we pick up here, at the back half of verse 23, is when they finally meet. So Peter was sent for, and he's decided to come. And I'll read 24 to 33. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's a great verse, by the way, isn't it? Cornelius was so faithful that he called his whole family and they're waiting. I'm always encouraged by that. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. Now, like I said, we're going to focus a little bit on Cornelius this morning. I want to take most of the time this morning to talk about what does it mean to be a God-fearing person, and how is this significant to the whole story. So, first of all, what is a God-fearing Gentile? Well, at the very least, we should say a God-fearing Gentile is someone who's attracted to the Jewish faith. And I don't think he's attracted because he's anything to gain. His, his military career is certainly not improved by him being attracted to Jewishness. It isn't like Jewish Judaism was the, the religion du jour of Rome. It certainly wasn't. So he's attracted to something deeper than the surface. He's attracted to the, the, the essence of the Jewish faith. And this, and this is what I think it is. I think, first of all, he's attracted to the monotheistic nature of Judaism. The fact that there's one God who's sovereign over all things. That is not how the rest of the world worships at the time, and certainly Cornelius' world. They worship all sorts of gods with all sorts of purposes, but he's attracted to this idea of one God sovereign over all things. That's, that's got to be the, one of the first things. The second thing is, I think Cornelius is attracted to the ethical nature of the faith. The ethical nature, because... In the Roman system of worship, as in most of those systems that were around, the gods were not ethical, they were aethical. They were, it wasn't about what's right, it was about the drama of the gods. All the things you have to read in English class. That's what it was about. It wasn't really connected to truth, it was connected to stories that had no connection to truth. And so, and so Cornelius is attracted in these ways. He's caught up by this idea of a God who commands. He's caught up in this idea that a faith that directs. And this has drawn him in and made him very attracted in varying degrees to the Jewish life. Now, 
it's important to figure out what parts of the Jewish life he's attracted to. Because to say he's a God-fearer is to say he's not a Jew. So he's not particularly attracted to the ritual and rites of Jewishness. Because if he was, he'd be a Jew. He's, circumcision and dietary rules can't be his hobby because if they were, he'd be a Jew. You, you see the difference? He's outside of Jewishness because he's not getting circumcised. He's outside of the Jewish life because he's not following the dietary restrictions, but he's a God-fearer, which means he's caught up by something else in the faith, something deeper than, than the ritual. And, and what I want to suggest this morning is that Cornelius and God-fearing people like him, they're attracted to the truth behind the ritual. They're attracted to the truth that the traditions are trying to express. That's what Cornelius is interested in. When the Hebrew people celebrate their festivals, when they dress their certain ways, when they go through their certain diet, when they talk about the holidays and the holy days of the Lord and the Jewish calendar... Cornelius is the kind of person who looks at that and from there, that point derives what's the significance about it. And he connects it to the Lord. And I can't imagine, by the way, I cannot imagine a better candidate to receive the gospel than the person like this, who looks at religion and is caught up in trying to get to the truth behind the tradition. Not because the tradition's bad. The tradition's not bad at all. The tra- Cornelius would say, it's the very tradition that has helped me discover the God behind it. That he's watching the Jewish lifestyle, and that Jewish lifestyle, even in this time of Christ, somewhat warped time in Jewish life, as far as understanding the Old Testament, even then, Cornelius is looking at Jewish life, and it is a light of life to him. He's seeing the imprint of God in it, and he's attracted to it, but he's not following the practices. He's following the truth. And this is what's said. This is how you know this. In the beginning of chapter 10, it describes Cornelius this way. The first way they say it is, he's a man who's fervent in prayer. So despite all of the ritual and all of the tradition and all of the the things he's seen, he has boiled it down in his life as, I ought to worship the Lord. He's a man of prayer. And then it says, and he gives to the poor. So after watching all of this and after hearing the word of the Lord spoken and interpreted and debated back and forth between the the Jews and the synagogues and this sort of thing, he's walked away with two things. I should worship the Lord and I should love my neighbor. I think Cornelius has got it right. He is a prime candidate for salvation. This story, by the way, is is the easiest evangelistic effort in the book. God chose the most primed candidate to receive the gospel, and then he went and appeared very specifically to Peter and prepared for him. And when they meet, the whole goal is to make it unmistakable that God is blessing this and is in charge of this. But this is kind of, this is the way that Cornelius is at this point. He's, he's into this truth that God is holy and ought to be worshipped, and that he ought to be kind to his neighbors. <coughs> but he's still not a Jew. He's a God-fearing man. There's a difference. I don't mean he's not saved because he's not a Jew. I mean there's a real difference between the fact that he's a God-fearing man, not a Jew. And I have been wrestling with this. What's the big deal? Why does it matter? 
Why doesn't God look down at Cornelius and say, Cornelius loves the Lord, he prays to the Lord, and he gives to the poor, he's saved? Why does he have to send Peter to tell him about Jesus? Isn't that enough? I've been uh, trying to figure out what is the distinctive nature of the God-fearer in the Jewish community. How, how does the, the alien or the foreigner incorporate himself into the Jewish community? How does the Jewish law treat that person? What, what, what is the significant difference? Why is it that God wants his people to be circumcised, to follow certain laws? If those are just shadows, why, why does he insist so much that his Jewish people do it, but that, that this God-fearing man doesn't? And so what I started to do is I started to read, and I found that I, I, can't, I don't have any good book that talks about this stuff, so I had to read the Bible. <laughs> Maybe there's one out there. But I started to read, and so I was reading in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and I was, I was searching those teachings with a goal in mind, which was to pay attention to every place that God starts to deal with a foreigner, the person who's not Jewish, and watch very closely as to how God deals with that person. And this is what I discovered. I discovered two ideas. First of all, I discovered this. That throughout the Jewish law and the traditions of, that are placed in Scripture, so the codified law of the Bible, the Jewish law, there is an attitude and an atmosphere of invitation to the foreigner. It's an attitude of invitation. In other words, God's law is permissive to allow the foreigner to hear about the Lord. God allows them to draw close in some degree. So, so God protects them in the law. If you read the law, the law says you can't murder people to include foreigners. You can't go around murdering foreigners. The same kind of general human rights rules apply, in essence, to both. That the, the Lord protects, protects the foreigner as well as, as the Jew from certain ideas, and he, he lumps them together. Here's a great example. In... Uh, in the sacrifices for unintentional sin in Leviticus. So if the people wake up one day and they realize, wow, we messed up. Like say like in Josiah, when Josiah discovers the book of the law and they read it and they go, oh, we've been so wrong. We've been misinterpreting the law all this time. Well, Leviticus prescribes sacrifice and atonement for that kind of thing. The Lord says, it's okay. There's a way to make this right. You still need to sacrifice. It was still wrong, but I understand. And the Lord gives prescriptions to how to sacrifice for it. Well, when he sacrifices, the Lord writes in Leviticus that you and all the foreigners living with you will be forgiven. You see that? Why is that there? It seems like the Lord is trying to invite the foreigners to live there. You know, there's other times. There's other times when the Lord speaks of the foreigners. When, when, when Solomon and kings is giving his prayer of the temple. He's dedicating the temple through prayer, and he's praying, and this is where he gets. So it's a long prayer, and he says, Lord, pray for us as a people, as the Israelites, that we see this, and pray for us as the Israelites, as we see this. And then he says this in his prayer, verse 41 of 1 Kings 8, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, 
Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. That's in the dedication of the temple. There's this desire to invite the Gentiles into the life, into the Jewish life, to observe and to watch. And so there is this invitational spirit. But right next to it, and this is the interesting thing, right next to it is an, is an attitude of exclusiveness that exists in the law. So in one way, God is inviting the foreigner and the alien to be part of the Jewish life in, very general sense, in a very general sense. But at the same time, the Lord is very, very sure to set exclusive boundaries that the Gentile can't cross. So he says, they can come live in your towns, but they can't eat with you. And they can come to the temple, but they can't go in the temple. They can offer sacrifice, but they can't ever watch it being made because it's behind the walls. Do you see the, the, the difference there? It's, it's as though God's saying, you can come and listen. Come listen, but don't speak. It's kind of the attitude. I don't want you to bring your stuff into my people. I don't mind if you come in and see what my people do. I don't mind if you come and experience the truth that's among my people, but don't bring your stuff here. Don't bring it in, in the Lord's house. Don't bring it among God's people. And so you have this attitude of invitation, come in here, and this attitude of you're really not like us. You're really different. You're really on the outside. And in, in, in the law, the Jewish law, they exist together. I'll give you a perfect example. Well, what I think is a perfect example. I don't know. Others. It's a good one. The Temple of Solomon, or let's just say the temple. In fact, the ones that you'll see in a moment are, are drawings of the temple that Herod built, not Solomon. But the temple itself is, an, is evidence of invitation. Right? When God says, you can erect for me a temple in my name, he is by definition inviting the world to look upon and to know him. He's condescending himself to have a dwelling place on earth. It's a beautiful temple. The temple that Herod built was a, was a wonder at the time. There was no equal to it in the land. And people would come from all around to see the temple of the Jewish God. And in that way, it is invitational in nature. It's where people would go to have their sins forgiven. It's, it's where you would go to confess things and to, and to give praise and thanks. It was where you would go to reflect your relationship with God, the temple. It's invitational. But at the same time of it being invitational, it's very exclusive. This temple is extremely exclusive. In, in, in the inner chamber, in the back of the temple, on the far west side of the building, was this small room. And you guys might remember, we had this... If I was on the ball, I'd have had them bring it back out again. They had a great model of a temple here a few weeks ago. The fifth and sixth graders did. But in the very back west side of the temple, there was a small room, and it was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And this room was extremely exclusive it was a room that only God was allowed to be in. God is so exclusive in some way that he said, only I can even be in this room. In fact, one human, one day a year, was allowed to walk in. And it wasn't to walk in and visit with God. It wasn't allowed to walk in and ask God questions. It was to walk in and say to God, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And then walk out. That was the purpose. So that room was extremely exclusive. Even among the Jewish people, it was exclusive. Well, outside of that, now... 
the Holy of Holies is in the back of the picture you're seeing. It's way in the back of that temple, and it's a small fraction of the larger structure. All the structure in front of it that pushes to the east, you're looking in through the east right here, or you're looking west. All of the structure that comes out towards you, that structure there was for the priests and Jews who were clean and uh, Jews who had taken particular attention to make sure they were clean. So within these, these walls around the building, Jews only. So Cornelius, no matter how interested he is in God, cannot go in here. In fact, Paul in Acts, at the end of Acts, Paul comes under an accusation that's not true. He comes back to Jerusalem, and the accusation is laid against him. He brought Greeks into the temple. And what they're saying is, is he brought Gentiles through those walls, which, for which the penalty is death. There's signs on those walls that say to the Gentiles, you cross this line and you're dead. That's how it is. So the Gentiles are not allowed in these walls. And in there, that's where the sacrifices are taking place. That the, the, the associated courts and rooms and the walls, that's where the, the Sanhedrin may be meeting. That's where all of the official poly and, and, and structure of the Jewish rites and rituals are occurring is right there. Because God's exclusive. Gentiles, you cannot come in. But there's a third part, and the third part's not wholly visible on that, that's, that image. It's on the next image. Do you see the big open space? There. you see it now? That big open space, do you know what that's called? It's called the Court of the Gentiles. It's not measured in cubits. Holy of Holies, this many cubits by that many cubits. The temple, this many cubits by that many cubits. The Court of the Gentiles is 35 acres. 35 acres of land set aside so that people can come from all tracts of the earth. Every corner of the planet can come and approach the Lord. He's inviting them. Come. Now, there's exclusion. You can come, but you can't come all the way. Come and hear. Come and learn. And you know what? It's in the court of the Gentiles that most of the Jews did most of their living. Few people went inside the actual temple. Why? Because you had to be clean. Why? Because it was for rites and rituals. Why? Because you had to really dress up, and rarely was a Jew clean anyway. You could get unclean at the drop of a hat. And so most of the living and dying of the Hebrew people, as far as conversation goes, as far as religious life goes, occurs in the court of the Gentiles. They're among the Gentiles. The Gentiles were allowed in. You were allowed to talk. You were allowed to do uh, certain kinds of business. Certain, certain things were happening. Certainly there were abuses that were happening, but it was a place, it was this middle space in life where, the, where the, the people who might be fearing God or might be attracted to the faith or might have questions to ask, they could come and hear. They were invited to listen, even though God was exclusive. Here's a few examples. When Jesus was 12, his parents left the Passover, and they're on their way home, and they realize halfway home, they're like, oh my gosh, we forgot our son. We have to go back. Well, I was just talking with Gina in the service. It's easier to understand that you'd lose your son in 35 acres. It isn't like he was here. You know, and he's like, maybe he's in the sycamore room. He's, there's 35 acres. You know where Jesus was, by the way? Was Jesus, because he was talking with the teachers of the law, wasn't he? He was baffling them with his questions. Was he in the most holy place? No. Was he in the holy place? No. He wasn't even in the temple proper. He was in the court of the Gentiles visiting with the teachers of the law which means Gentiles could have listened. 
They could have stood there and listened. When Jesus walks in at the great triumphal entry and he comes to the temple at his final Passover and he sees the money changers and, and all of the business happening and topples over the tables, where is he doing that? He's doing it in the court of the Gentiles. And by the way, I don't think it's, he's upset so much that there is someone's selling a sacrifice. I think he's upset because they don't have the holy day in mind. I think it's people who, who are trying to pawn off animals and sacrifices and exchange money and do all this totally mindless of the fact that God's holy Passover is about to be observed. And so he walks in and he says this in the Gentile temple. Just let this work in your brain. In the Gentile court, he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. That, to me, that, that has worked in me to say... Apparently, he sees the court of the Gentiles as the Father's house. And so, in a way, I know, I know Cornelius is living in Caesarea, which is a, miles away from Jerusalem. But in a symbolic way, you might imagine that Cornelius is living in the court of the Gentiles. His attraction to the faith is being caught up by the things he hears and the exchanges he makes with other Jewish people. It says in the scriptures that the Jew, he was well respected among the Jews. Well respected. He's, he's, he's part of them, but he can come, but he can't come all the way, can he? There's, there's going to be a wall that Cornelius hits where someone says, you cannot pass this wall. And, and, and behind this wall is where real atonement takes place. Behind this wall is where real sacrifice takes place. And behind this wall is where God really lives. You can't go there. You can learn about him, but you can't go there. I imagine in my mind that Cornelius on the east gate of the temple having like a, his ear against the door, trying to hear the muffled sounds of truth behind it. What's happening? What's really happening inside the faith? What's going on? I'm going to take a departure right now and just ask a few questions about our church today. I think the Jew-Gentile dichotomy isn't that useful for us in this instance, but the Christian-non-Christian dichotomy raises some questions for me. In what ways, in what ways do we potentially behave as an Acts 9 church, not an Acts 10 church? In the ways that we, we think of the world as outside of this building, outside of, of this structure that, that our worship is kind of behind the thick wall, that unless somebody's really willing to kind of go through a lot of purification rites to come and sit among us, they're really not going to learn what's going on here. You know, it's, it's quite interesting. The front door of our building is actually right, right out these doors. None of us think of it as the front door. Um, but i got to tell you, every day I see it, I am reminded that nobody walks through the front door of the church anymore. You go, look, there's no feet print in that snow. Where they're done. People are not coming into the church like they used to. And I, and I force myself to ask, where is this middle space for us? Where is this place where we can come out of our walls and talk about God and share about God and inform and have, have community with the non-Christian, with the with the person who's outside the faith, where is this disarming place? This place where we can meet. 
And I don't know. You know, it's, it's a truth. It's a, it's a question for the church, and it's a question in your family. In your family, have you, have you insulated your family so much to protect them in the faith that they're behind this huge wall, and the only time you ever leave is to go get supplies and come back? Right? And your only window to access is TV, as though that's a healthy window to the real world. Is that, is that how we're living? Or are you seeing that I ought to, in my own life, have a middle place? A place where I let my hair down. I don't let my faith down. I let my hair down. And my goal is to cement real relationships with people who may have questions. They need a middle place. God has invited the non-believing world to draw close. Where do they draw close? Where do they draw close in your life? Are you enabling them to do that? Is your faith so private that it's uncomfortable for them to even ask a question? Where is this middle space? That, if you only knew how many times I've asked that in the past two weeks. So here's Cornelius. Cornelius is at the door. He's listening. He's listening. And then there is this place where Peter shows up. He knocks on the door. And the door opens. I mean, I love the image. In my own mind, I love the image of Peter opening the door of the temple. You know, this massive 30-foot door, and there's this small Peter. He opens the door, and he says, God sent me to talk to you. I mean, just imagine. If I was a painter, I would paint this picture. Because in my mind, I would paint Cornelius on his tippy toes, trying to see over Peter. What's going on in there? And you know what I would paint way in the background? I would paint Moses in the background. And I would paint David. I would paint David with his arms around you, or Uriah and his, his son who died at birth. I would paint these things, these images of somebody who's heard about them and wants to know more about them. And they're all behind Peter. Peter's lived in it and among it. It's all it's just his story. And you crack this door open, and there's people who want to know. And there's people who need to know. And it's there, and they're having to crane up over Peter's shoulder to hear if I was a painter. And Peter opens his mouth, and this is what he says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you believe this? Peter's opening the door. He's staring out. Behind him is all the truth of God and its splendor. And he's saying these things to you. Do you believe them? I'm going to repeat them again slowly. 
Peter begins this way. This is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Then he says this. This Jesus was anointed by God with the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe this? I don't mean do you believe in your mind. I mean does your heart, soul, mind, and body resonate with it? You know this question of, I don't know if I believe or do I believe. When it falls on you, does, you, does something in you go, ah, do you believe it? Peter says God chose Jesus and God anointed Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit at baptism. And then he says something else. He says, furthermore, this same Jesus walked the earth and did good deeds and healed people and saved people from darkness. He was the light in the life of men and he rescued them from evil. That's what Peter said. Do you believe that? And then he says this. He says, in his, because of this, we know he was of the Lord. But he, said, he goes on. He says, there's more. This isn't it. Peter says, we are witnesses not only of what Jesus did in his life, we are also witnesses of the fact that mankind killed Jesus. He says, the Jews put Jesus on the cross. And it was, it was the, the, the request of the Jews and the blessings of the Gentiles. All mankind bears the burden of the crucifixion of Christ. It happened on the cross, and Peter says, this Jesus, who was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit who walked the earth bringing life and light to mankind, was crucified by you. Do you believe this? But there's more. He says, but God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and has appointed him as judge over the living and the dead. Do you believe this? Furthermore, the Old Testament scriptures testify about him. And finally, therefore, anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ, anointed by the Father with the power of the Holy Spirit, he spoke and did good deeds and rescued people from darkness through his life and light. Everyone knew that he was of God. Despite that, mankind crucified him on the cross. God resurrected him on the third day, appointed him as judge over all of the living and the dead, and that all who receive forgiveness of sins receive it through his name, Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? This is the difference. This is how you know, are you, are you a God-fearing listener? Or are you part of the fellowship? Now there's some responses I'm anticipating from those of you who are right on the fringe, who are wrestling with with your response. I think some of you may say this. Some of you may say, "But if God knew how much I've done wrong, He wouldn't. The salvation isn't for me." Which, which I would say, nothing in the story I read had anything to do with you. Jesus was anointed by God. Jesus did works and wonders. Jesus walked the earth and gave light and light to men. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was resurrected by the power of God. Jesus was appointed by God to be the judge over the living and the dead. And that salvation comes through Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. 
The fact that you've had a bad sin puts you in a category of 100% of humanity. Do you believe this? And the other category I would ask, or I imagine has some kind of complaint right now, is, as well, let me fix myself so that I'm worthy and clean to enter the temple. To which I say this, what God has made clean, let no man call unclean. So one more verse I'm going to read. And it's this, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. I love that. I love that. that the Holy Spirit just pushes Peter out of the way. I have this idea that there's the temple and he's got the door open and he's speaking the words of life out and when it lands on the people and they receive salvation for the first time, in my mind, the Holy Spirit grabs Peter just out of my way and he rushes out into the court of the Gentiles. You know, and I think sometimes we read Matthew 27 about the veil behind the whole most holy place being torn in two. We think of ourselves as now we have access to go into the most holy place and to meet with God and to understand Him more purely. I would say there's another way of understanding this, which is now the Holy of Holies has come out. Now He has left His seat. Now He is no longer satisfied to be exclusive. He has a broad invitation to all mankind, and now He has pushed Peter out of the way, and He's dwelling with all mankind. Do you believe this? Please pray with me. Almighty God, Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ was spoken in your hearing and among your people. Lord, as it falls on believers first, I pray first and foremost that you would correct our gospels. Lord, the gospel is like something that if not tended to and, and understood, it falls in disrepair, Lord. Help us, help us to keep your word rightly and to know how to communicate it and to know how to share it in that middle place of our life, when someone feels comfortable enough to say to us, what did you mean when you said? Tell me more about. Why did you do this? Lord, prepare us to have an accurate, life-giving answer, not to cower away behind new age conversation. And Lord, I lift up this second category. Father, I lift up the non-Christian who right now is at the door listening to the words of Peter. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fall on them. Lord, I pray that to the question, do you believe this? They would say, yes. Amen. Amen. Amen.